Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Judith Yaros-Lee, Distinguished Professor in Communication Studies at Ohio University and Dr. Joseph Slade, Professor Emeritus in Media Arts and Studies, about a new documentary, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Beyond the Mask, being distributed to public television stations through the National Education Television Association. Lee and Slade worked in cooperation with director, writer, producer, and filmmaker Frederick Lewis to produce this documentary about the first African-American to achieve national fame as a writer. What particularly got you interested in his story? Well, he is the father of African-American letters. Um, and we think he's particularly important because most people think of African-American letters as really beginning with the Harlem Renaissance in the late teens and 1920s. But Dunbar, of course, was uh, making his living by his pen um, much earlier than that. So we think of him as really the progenitor of a lot of American African-American literature. In fact, he passed away in 1906, is That's that correct, right? at 33. Uh, very brief life, but prodigious output. The project arose because um, there was a group of faculty at the university who were very interested in starting an American Studies program that would be very interdisciplinary. And um, we decided to go for funding to the National Endowment for the Humanities for the, one of these regional humanities centers. And thus, the um, NEH had defined the region that Ohio University is located in um, as a s group of five states that was Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Kentucky, and West Virginia. And when we were trying to figure out how one could conceptualize these five states as a region when they didn't fall under any other f familiar regional thematics. We came across Dunbar as a person who had tentacles, you might say, in all five states. That is, he was born in Ohio, but his parents had been slaves in Kentucky. He had been influenced as a poet by uh, James Whitcomb Riley of Indiana, the Hoosier poet, who was writing white dialect poetry and turning folk idiom into literary material. 
And then Dunbar himself influenced other poets, African-American and others, in both Michigan and West Virginia. And we thought, and one of the major uh, theories of African-American um, speech and rhetoric came from Henry Louis Gates, who was a West Virginia native himself. So we thought that Dunbar provided a an example of the ways in which this region could be understood as having a kind of coherence. And he became important to us as a way of making sense out of this otherwise unusual grouping of states to think of as a region. Now, you went back and, and, and looked at, at his life and his work, but it took eight years to, to do all of this? <laughs> Actually, Longer than that. <laughs> uh, I don't it, think a person who watches a documentary gets the sense of what all is behind it. So, no, I so, don't. So I don't if you could so. sort of go through that. Well, um, the the idea of working on Dunbar was uh, with us from the very beginning of the center's founding, and then we got uh, a series of grants. Uh, one, a supplementary grant from the National Endowment to. Uh, uh, sort of convene a bunch of scholars who would uh, talk about the feasibility of doing projects on Dunbar. And so the idea for the documentary really came out of that grouping. Then we went in uh, 2003, we went to the Ohio Council for the Humanities, and they gave us $20,000 to provide a uh, treatment, a sort of script, which we've since modified beyond all recognition and to start the purchasing of uh, visual images and uh, some travel to sources and things like that. And then we did a good deal of collecting of footage over the next few years. Uh, we co-sponsored a, a major conference on Dunbar at Stanford University in 2006. And Judith and I took a uh, videographer with us and went out to Stanford and we videotaped about uh, 12 leading Dunbar scholars, of whom about half appear on camera on the documentary. Um, and then over the next few years, we just continued to send out uh, um, sort of camera crews to get footage. And then in 2013, I did a, uh, a sort of preliminary script, um, sat down with one of our student editors, put together a, uh, uh, a sort of work in progress of about an hour, showed it a couple of places. Uh, and then by that time, Frederick Lewis, who was uh, from the outset our choice for director of the film, right. uh, had freed himself from a lot of obligations and was able to sort of get down to it to send out some more camera crews to get uh, footage at the Dunbar High Schools and uh, various other venues, and then to do some additional research, fill in the gaps with even more images and so forth. Um, so that's basically the history. It's, it's mostly leaps and starts. You know. I guess I would add to that that um, the documentary was uh, certainly a cornerstone and the capstone, you might say, um, of the project. But really, the Dunbar project involved a great many other activities. Um, the center had as its, has as its mission, uh, we're still active, um, both research and public 
programming in the humanities so that it's designed to um, be not only an institute where scholars and um, faculty focus their attentions and develop new knowledge about regional American culture in this area, but also to provide public programming that would be attractive around the region, although for all kinds of reasons now we concentrate our efforts in Athens. But at the time uh, that we started in the early 2000s, uh, we sponsored poetry readings and performances of Dunbar's works all over the region. There were Dunbar celebrations all over the region. We had even um, Jerry Miller at the time, uh, director of Ohio University Forensics, sponsored as an event at one of the forensics tournaments in the region, um, a competition in uh, reading Dunbar poetry and also other African-American uh, poetry in the tradition of his works. We brought to campus a, a performing group from Dayton who uh, performed uh, contemporary musical settings of Dunbar's uh, poetry to music. And so they sang uh, and provided spoken word um, performances atop original contemporary classical music. So the Dunbar Project was for us always a much broader array of, of activities designed to showcase the role of this region and especially the state of Ohio in African-American letters uh, and to explore the legacy of Dunbar in contemporary arts of all kinds uh, because he's been such an inspiration um, to poets and uh, visual artists and um, uh, African-American um, cultural producers of, of, for a hundred years now. For people who are listening who may not be that familiar with Paul Lawrence Dunbar and uh, his early life, mm -hmm. uh, I mean very young life, <laughs> very short life I should say, but his early life, explain to people his relationship with the Wright brothers because they were almost neighbors in Dayton yes. uh, and uh, he had an ongoing relationship early in his life with them, correct? That's correct. Just when he met the Wright brothers is, is not uh, clear, but he went to high school. Uh, Dayton was one of the very few cities to integrate its schools, uh, which it did not so much out of moral reasons, but to save money. <laughs> and Dunbar's mother was quite aggressive in putting him forward so that she enrolled him as soon as that was possible in integrated schools. Um, and by the time he got to high school, uh, he became a classmate of Orville and uh, actually Wilbur had already dropped out of high school, but Orville uh, was a, a very close friend. And the Wright brothers, being the Wright brothers, uh, always invented things. So the two of them, while they were still in high school, actually invented a printing press and started their own printing business. And Dunbar, who was also inventive, decided that, uh, well, hey, if they've got a printing press, uh, I've got an idea for an African-American newspaper. And so he started a, a newspaper called The Tattler which unfortunately uh, lasted only three issues. He had somewhat misjudged his audience because most African-Americans couldn't afford 
to subscribe to a newspaper. But Orville and Wilbur bankrolled it anyway for those three issues. And then the Wright brothers, of course, moved on to become bicycle entrepreneurs. They gave Nunbar a bicycle, incidentally. He kept up with them, and they supported him. They continued to print off notices when he would give recitations and performances and things like that. And the relationship was also, though it's difficult to assess, somewhat assisted by the fact that Dunbar's mother, who was a laundress and seamstress, uh, was actually the housekeeper for a time for Bishop Wright, who was the father Father. of Orville and Wilbur. So the relationship was... uh, Deeper than it sounds, but also slightly accidental in in a way, though Orville continued to be uh, Dunbar's friend for for many years. And as you probably know, uh, 1938, the state of Ohio made Dunbar's house a uh, a state memorial, and then a few years later it was enfolded in the National Memorial and is now uh, to the Wright brothers, so it's now called the Wright-Dunbar Memorial. And so that includes Dunbar's house, uh, it includes the Wright Brothers' printing press and their print shop, and also their cycle shop. Talk about uh, his, and again, for people who may not be that familiar with him, talk about his writing. People may think he was just a poet. He he certainly was more than that, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, he was. Um, He is best known for the poems, but he wrote 200 short stories. He wrote four novels. Uh, He wrote several plays, only one of which was actually produced, and he wrote a great many lyrics. Um, His poems are easily set to music and have been set to different arrangements uh, many, many times, especially some of the more famous poems like uh, When Melindy Sings, uh, Jump Back, Honey, Jump Back, uh, but also the really famous ones, We Wear the Mask, and I know why the caged bird sings. So he was amazingly prolific for someone who died at 33. And at one point at his peak, when he had achieved a certain degree of popularity, he was writing like 50,000 words a week for magazines wow. like uh, the Saturday Evening Post. So. And he was in the century too, but he was also a performing phenomenon. I think we, think today of literary celebrity as being very separate from popular culture, especially poetry, um, as being very separate from popular culture. That was certainly not the case in the 19th century and and the early 20th century either. Um, And really as far back as the Chautauqua movements and the lecture self-improvement movements of the early 19th century, poets... um, and writers were on the lecture circuit going from town to town um, and um, achieving a lot of of celebrity and and attracting pretty good-sized audiences. Of course, there was no amplification. So, uh, but little opera houses like uh, Stewart's Opera House up the up the road here and um, and even auditoria and churches were put to uh, use in the self-improvement movement that was so much an important part of 19th and early 20th century democracy and Dunbar was a phenomenon on the lecture circuit and he recited and he was you know some of it was um, 
as we look back on it, a little uncomfortable because his claim to fame was that he was um, African-American um, through both lines, through both his father and his mother, where other um, famous writers, people like Frederick Douglass, um, were reputed to have a white father, for example, um, as a result of slave rape. And um, so it was tempting for people to attribute Douglas's genius, for example, to the fact that he wasn't um, 100% African-American um, or African descent. Um, the same could not be said for Dunbar, and that became part of his claim to fame also. It was a way of proving that African, African Americans had the same intellectual capacity uh, as, uh, as white people. And so he became um, really celebrated by liberal communities who wanted to bring him in as a phenomenon to demonstrate the uh, intellectual depth and virtuosity of him, both as a writer and as a performer. Apparently, he was quite an effective performer and um, was really um, well appreciated on um, from say ladies groups that were that would meet on an afternoon for um, cultural entertainment and so on. So I think, and he lectured in. Um, he had the same lecture agent, for example, as Mark Twain. Uh, Major James Pond, who also um, sent him abroad. He lectured in England. So he was an international phenomenon. And of course, that helps you sell books too, especially books of poetry. Uh, so I think it's important to recognize that his fame at the during his lifetime was really uh, very much broader as a as a representative of a kind of new American, writer who um, was from an oppressed group, but who had demonstrated his capacity and who was um, really a representative of what African Americans could be, the, ta the talented tenth, as W.B. Du Bois put it later on. Talk a little bit, if you would, about uh, his political leanings, at least his political writings, mm -hmm. and I was struck in, in, in reading some of the material uh, about the documentary that, that he was very critical of, of Booker T. Washington, for example, and, and how did that fit into his political philosophy? Well, uh, as you know, I mean, uh, at around the turn of the century, you had people like Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois and or somewhat slightly earlier, Frederick Douglass, who were pushing for civil rights and for recognition of minorities, especially African-Americans. Um, Dunbar himself was convinced that Booker T. Washington was not so much leading people astray as that he had the wrong philosophy because uh, Washington was identified at the time through his many platform speeches with a kind of accommodation. And this took the practical form of Washington's pushing an education which was really very largely practical rather than more intellectual for African Americans. And Dunbar differed with that. He himself 
thought of himself as a, an intellectual. He thought that uh, until African Americans were uh, recognized for their inter- for their intellect and for their contributions to culture, that nothing really would change. And so, it was hardly a knockdown, dragout fight with uh, Booker T. Washington, but they they did begin to part ways. And Dunbar instead found a closer sort of alliance with W.E.B. Du Bois, who unfortunately the, the relationship never matured as it might have because Dunbar was about the time that he met Du Bois and that Du Bois was uh, uh, beginning his own advocacy. Uh, Dunbar was suffering from tuberculosis and gradually moving off the national stage while W.E.B. Du Bois was moving on to it. So um, his politics were not what you would call radical by any means, but they were insistent that African Americans should have a place in American culture, American life, American politics. Uh, He did write strongly against uh, Jim Crow, uh, against uh, lynchings and things like that, but you wouldn't call him a political firebrand. It's just that he tried uh, consistently to advance the cause of of African Americans. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College of Communication was awarded $878,000 by Ohio University for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of equipment, processes, intellectual property, and award-winning scholars and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. me out, uh, if you could, uh, either of you. Uh, he fashioned himself as an intellectual, but he wrote in plantation dialect, and I know that's been controversial somewhat in, mm. in people looking at his career. Can, can you help me out with that sort of juxtaposition? Sure. Um, there, there's some ironies attached here. Um, his earliest poems were dialect poems. Um, On the other hand, it was clear to himself and uh, if not necessarily to others that he really wanted to write in plain English, uh, that he thought of himself as a classical poet in the mold of Byron or Shirley or uh, someone like that. Um, But he soon realized that uh, dialect poetry was what sold. And there are many ways of looking at it. On, on the one hand, he is probably one of the great dialect poems, uh, certainly better than someone like James Whitcomb Riley, whom at first he actually imitated. But I suppose one should also point out that the dialect that he wrote in 
is not a dialect that you would find in Kentucky or Alabama or Mississippi or places like that, even and partly because Dunbar had never been there. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he invented a kind of dialect that is lyrical. It's not Joel Chandler Harris, Uncle Remus kind of dialect, okay. but it is a dialect that brings out the beauty of African-American speech as he understood it. Now, again, the ironies multiply because, uh, on the one hand, he was praised for his dialect poetry, and it sold well, but he came to think that it was a weight around his neck, that he was being pigeonholed as just a dialect writer. Um, and so he strove, at least part of the time, to come up with a more standard English kind of poetry. And he succeeded uh, brilliantly in the case of We Wear the Mask and I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, originally called Sympathy. Um, and what's notable about those two is they contain no references to African Americans at all. Uh, so they are sort of universal in the sense that he wanted to be universal. A further irony is, however, that Dunbar still lives within the African-American community because of the dialect poetry. Help it's, me out with that. Well, he's cherished I the see. poems like When Melindy Sings, uh, Jump Back Honey, Jump Back. Those are still taught by parents to their children even today. I mean, I dare say that there's hardly an African-American over the age of 30 who is not nurtured in some way on the poems of Paul Lawrence Dunbar and specifically those dialect poems. I remember Nikki Giovanni, we actually interviewed her when she was here on campus and we did not have room for her in the documentary and I really regret that. But one of the things she said was that Dunbar was her earliest memory, that her mother used to recite his poems and that she learned this kind of dialect. And one has to learn it. I mean, even the performers of Dunbar's poems, the people who recite his poems, you have to sort of learn that dialect because it's not the one that you might have been born with. It's not exactly literary, but on the other hand, it represents and translates an African-American experience, which apparently is still felt very strongly. But literary dialects have a very long history in American writing, um, really going back into the 18th century. Um, and certainly by the early 19th century, they were associated with uh, literary humor, starting with uh, Seba Smith's Jack Downing, but even before that, Thomas Chandler Halliburton and a lot of other literary humorists, people writing newspaper humor to fill those columns when there wasn't much news and they would circulate among the editors uh, because every every editor had the same problem with insufficient copy. So um, even by the time Mark Twain started writing dialect newspaper items in the mid-1860s, um, dialect writing already had a very long history, mostly associated with lower-class characters who were going to one-up some smart-aleck, educated person who thought that 
elite social status equated to wisdom. This is, of course, an ongoing American fetish. (laughs) So there was an audience for this that was very well established as as a popular audience. But it's important also to note that most of the outlets that published this, especially um, in the 1890s when Dunbar was publishing, um, mostly had a white readership. And so, uh, and the places that could pay very well, places like the Century, um, the Atlantic, and so on, which had the biggest readership of all um, and paid extremely well, um, they, they had largely white audience. And so, the editors were looking for material that was uh, extremely high quality and that would validate the money and the space they were giving over to it, but at the same time was familiar enough that uh, audiences would respond to it. So some of the short stories um, in the plantation mode don't have quite the, um, the folk dimensions, say that Charles Chestnut's work did that was being published at about the same time, Um, but it certainly was in a mold that would appear in a magazine that people would find familiar, and especially northern readers would find validating as they allowed their disaffection for the Old South to mix with a kind of uh, nostalgia for a more pastoral lifestyle, um, you know, Gone with the Wind, um, the sentimentality associated with that had had an audience after the war and, yeah. and um, in the 19th century. And so um, popular writers um, need to earn a living, and they're sensitive to what the market wants. And one, one could also point out that uh, Dunbar was fortunate in that, in a sense, he caught a wave because after it was clear that Reconstruction had failed and that the nation was still far from united, uh, magazine editors thought that, well, one way of sort of reaching out and bringing regions together was to publish material that reflected the dialect of these different regions. And so to a certain degree, there was a market there waiting for Dunbar uh, when he first began to write. I know that he wasn't always uh, well-heeled financially, uh, was an elevator operator. Uh. Well, some of that was racism that just really um, restricted his opportunities. So when but, he finally got a job at the Library of Congress, you know, he was a page schlepping books sure. to and from the stack. So, so some of that, a lot of that was racism. Talk about, though, the uh, Broadway songs that he composed and and the sort of borderline minstrels you not, know, not uh, just approach. borderline <laughs> okay i was trying to be generous but, uh, but, yeah. but how did that fit in with his life his attitudes is is well i think that um as he grew older uh, as his uh, popularity increased he also felt that he needed to be paid and um, again, that was you know, one, one of his motivations. The Broadway, he did participate in two musicals that were, in fact, minstrel shows. His wife very much opposed this because there were songs that employed things like you know, darkies and, and stuff like right. that. Uh, they did use uh, grease paint. 
uh, where you had performers who put on blackface uh, in order to participate in this uh, minstrel tradition. And one could say, looking back, that this was embarrassing. Uh, but he made quite a bit of money from it. So I don't know that one needs to excuse it or justify it, except to say that uh, he was working with uh, Will Marion Cook, who was an African-American musician of some talent. And uh, the two of them perceived an opportunity to uh, move Minstrel to, you know, in sort of elevated a tad in mm -hmm. terms of mm -hmm. status by uh, coming up with original songs um, and with original dances, um, even though the cakewalk was part of that, um, as a way of establishing an African-American presence on Broadway, which they did. So I mean, uh, I, I think I'm reminded of the, mm -hmm. what is it, Butterfly McQueen, who said, I'd rather play a maid than be one. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think there was a sense in which minstrel performances had a very wide audience. They were nationally recognized as a, an indigenous American art form. Uh, they had audiences often that were quite well healed. That is, there were performances in the in the boondocks that were um, on a shoestring, but there were also troops that performed 12 months a year on tour um, and in big cities for, for large audiences. And so in a time before movies and television, uh, this was a popular entertainment that could eat up a lot of material and people wanted a mix of new material and old favorites. And um, there's a very interesting book that came out oh, 20 or so years ago uh, about minstrelsy that summed it up as love and theft, that there was an affection for the creativity of African-American performers um, and a desire to steal it um, by white folks who wanted to perform it in blackface, although oftentimes there were African-Americans performing in blackface too. So, And, and those were the kind performing in the Dunbar Cook music. One yeah. The first one was called Clorindy, uh, and it uh, produced some pretty interesting music. And then the second one was called Endahomey, which traveled the world for about three years. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, to give you some idea of its popularity. popularity right. But they were all black performers, too, which made them a little bit different from whites putting on blackface. Yes, right. so. Mm -hmm. so as people watch this documentary... My last question to both of you is, uh, what do you want somebody to walk away from after they've watched this? Just more knowledge, uh, a feeling? Uh, well, I think, I think the one unfortunate side effect of something like Black History Month is a vehicle for bringing a documentary like this to people's attention is that it tends to silo African-American creativity and and contributions to American culture. So I guess one of the things I hope people walk away from is a knowledge of a really talented American who uh, brought a distinctive life experience and vantage point to work that has lasting value and lasting interest and um, to be curious about other dimensions of African-American life that they may not recognize 
uh, have made a really big impact in American culture, broadly speaking. I, I think we also want people to realize just how influential he has actually been. At one time, it is said there were 400 high schools in America named after Dunbar, and we include three or four of them in the uh, documentary by way of discussing his legacy, which is profound. I mean, he has inspired sculptors, artists, dancers, musicians. There's an opera about his life. The Dayton contemporary dance troupe routinely performs works centered on his life and his work. He still speaks to us, not just to the African-American community, but to all of us through works like uh, We Wear the Mask and I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. One of the pieces that we're proudest of, we didn't actually shoot. We actually sort of purchased it from NBC, is a uh, long clip in which Maya Angelou recites I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings from Memory. Wow. And anyone watching that, I think, cannot help but be impressed as too weak a word. I mean, it's a, it's, a tour, it's a tour de force. And Dunbar is at last coming into his own, I think, in many respects, uh, partly because of the Stanford Conference, which we co-sponsored in 2006, and because of this documentary where uh, he's being recognized for the, the talent that he was. And also, when one doesn't want to reduce it to cliches, uh, the difficulty that an African-American writer had at that particular time in overcoming barriers, but that he did overcome those barriers. Well, I want to thank both of you for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Today, we've talked with distinguished professor Dr. Judith Yaros-Lee and emeritus professor Dr. Joseph Slade about the new public television documentary, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Beyond the Mask. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.